Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast. In it, we will be discussing the review paper by Sinead Barry, Jillian Baird, Karine Nassels, Penny Bunton, and Tammy Hederley, which is entitled Neurodevelopmental Movement Disorders, an Update on Childhood Motor Stereotypies, which is due to be published in the November issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Dr. Tammy Heatherly, who is pediatric neurologist and leader of the Tandem Service at the Evelina Children's Hospital, which is part of Guy's and St. Thomas's in London, who is one of the authors, and by Professor Mark Mahone, who is a child neuropsychologist, director of the neuropsychology unit in Kennedy Krieger Institute, Baltimore, and Professor of Psychiatry at John Hopkins in Baltimore as well. Please, can we start with you, Tammy, to discuss the background of the paper, please? Thank you. So as part of running the clinical service for Tandem, we accept a wide range of referrals of children with different movement disorders, mostly tics and Tourette-related disorders, but we're also seeing a number of children who we believe movements are best described by the term motor stereotypy. And so with this experience, we thought we'd review what's known about this group of neurodevelopmental movement disorders, stereotypy, is defined really as a movement which is repetitive, lacks clear function, and really negatively impacts probably on a child's life, although not always, and I think that's an interesting thing to discuss later. We've looked at possible etiological basis in the paper describing four really large proposed theories. We've reviewed some of the data about treatment strategies, psychological treatment, and including some behavioral approaches and also some pharmacological strategies. And we've also talked about our own views about the possible genetic basis and links to other comorbidities such as obsessive compulsive tendencies or behaviors, sleep problems, other behavioral difficulties and some developmental disorders such as autism spectrum. And we've talked about how in some children we can't find evidence of these conditions either, so the normal spectrum of these movements. And I'm very pleased to be able to discuss this further with Professor Mahone today. Mark, would you like to comment? Yes, I'm I'm very interested in this topic as well. At the Kennedy Krieger Institute and at Johns Hopkins, we follow a number of these children with movement disorders, and we find that there is a large sample of children who do not have other neurodevelopmental conditions like autism or rest syndrome that nevertheless have these complex motor stereotypies. And we think that the condition is more common than is generally recognized. We've followed in a couple of retrospective papers. The first one we followed and did chart review on 40 children, and the second one we followed up those same 40 children and added another 60 to look at total of 100 children who have come to our clinic who have these stereotypies but do not have autism, and we find that many of them, if not most, uh, have their onset very early in life, by three years of age, and that they do seem to have a pattern of comorbidities that resembles what is seen in Tourette syndrome, including things like ADHD, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorders, and some of these children actually have tics as well. And and I think importantly, there also seems to be a fairly strong family history of stereotypies in in approximately uh, 15 to 20% of these children, suggesting there may be some genetic link to this. Yeah, I mean, I have the same experience, really. I think 
what's very interesting is when you see the children presenting with the stereotypies, it can take quite a lot of interviewing with the parents to get it out of them that they may have experienced similar movement and certainly it wouldn't have been recognised at the time as being a stereotypy and it, it's my experience that the parents are quite reluctant sometimes to disclose this information and it's only by really quite careful questioning about going back to their further generation so looking at grandparents and interviewing grandparents when it finally comes out that these parents of the children also experience almost identical movements in some cases. Yes, we find the same thing and uh, unfortunately we, we find that the you know, parents are often concerned about autism in these children because many of the times it involves clapping or such movements and they may even be told that the child has autism but after a more careful assessment it's later determined that the only thing that's common to the autism spectrum is really the the motor stereotypies, the rest of the development is, is not consistent with that. So we're concerned that there's some misinformation given to parents early on. I absolutely agree. And the other thing that happens, you see, by definition of autism in, well, multidisciplinary setting assessments of what autism is, if you think when you score on interviewing, you look at repetitive and ritualistic behaviors, as part of your scoring for your diagnosis of autism. And so people can take the stereotypies very literally and actually use that as a diagnostic criteria in itself. Add in some, maybe some social impairments because children are perceived as a bit odd because they're carrying out these movements. And in the sort of wrong hands, if you like, get diagnosed as having autism spectrum because of lack of understanding about what impairments you may need to fulfill that diagnosis. I agree. We also see some overlap with tic disorders and Tourette's syndrome in these children. You know, we're beginning to look at some biological markers and we're starting to do some neuroimaging studies. And we're expecting we're going to find some similar patterns that are found among the children with tic disorders and Tourette's. The one neuroimaging study that's been published, we did see reduced white matter, particularly in the, in the frontal lobes, but that was a very small study. We're continuing to study that right now. But although there is overlap with Tourette's syndrome and tic disorders, there are some clear differences in the patterns that we see in motor stereotypies, including an earlier age of onset. For most of the children, when you carefully look back at their history, they had onset of these in infancy or at least by three years of age. These behaviors tend to be more constant and fixed than we see in tics. They tend to be a bit more rhythmic, and we see uh, less premonitory urge in the children that have stereotypies. In fact, a number of the children that we talk to, when we say, hey, did you notice you were flapping? They would say, no, I didn't even notice it. And when they do notice it, it feels like, in my experience, they actually sometimes find it fairly pleasurable, enjoyable. They seem to be on reflection saying, well, actually, I was just having quite a nice time. It might be an intense imagination at the time of the movement. Do you find that too? Yes, we find that they do that when they're engrossed in something, when they're doing something pleasurable, or even uh, uh, playing a game of some kind. Yeah, and I'm interested because one of the questions I'm asking myself at the moment, because I'm running a, a clinic in a tertiary centre in the centre of London, and I'm wondering whether we get some sort of referral bias. Some of the referral comes from parents pushing for a referral to this tertiary clinic, 
And so we're by selection seeing parents who are often highly intelligent and a lot of research, seeking out of a neurologist to see their child. And I don't know whether the parents I'm seeing of these children, therefore, are naturally high-achieving IT. We have the same problem in Baltimore because the ones that come to our specialty clinic are much the same there. Ones that have been referred by other providers who are more informed about this, they tend to have read about it themselves a bit which also concerns me because I do think that this is more common than we even see in our clinic. Yeah, and so we might be getting an unfair view on the sort of families who have children with stereotypies. Are there a lot of children out there having lots of stereotypies who never come to medical attention who don't have this sort of background? And is it skewing somehow our thoughts about the etiology? It worries me a little bit. It's probably the same in the Tourette's population that I'm seeing you naturally assume that the, the parents are the sort of parents who have, by genetic selection, very good OCBs, so obsessive-compulsive behaviours that have made them very successful in life. But how representative is that of that population of children with Tourette's? I agree. Is there an association between obsessive-compulsive disorder in adults and stereotypes in children? Yes. I mean, there's a well-recognized association, obviously, with Tourette's and OCD, and that's been well-described in the literature for a long time and obviously clinically very observable. In stereotypies, I think it's less well-described, but I think, as Mark's saying, the comorbidity spectrum of linked conditions with stereotypies is very similar, as you see in Tourette's. So, it's not surprising, therefore, that we're seeing a lot of obsessive-compulsive tendencies. I think what's really interesting, I saw a 20-month-old very recently who presented with stereotypies, who was already showing traits of obsessive-compulsiveness, so was realigning cuts so that the handles were perpendicular with the table, was not in an autism way, was not lining objects or being ordered in objects, but actually was more particular. They had to have her plate just slightly to the right of the table mat. It was more an obsessive-compulsive trait rather than a ritualistic, repetitive trait. And so on careful questioning, we had to elicit the family history of quite marked ordering, an ordering obsessive-compulsive behaviour, not an ordering autism spectrum-type behaviour. And it's very difficult to describe the difference, but qualitatively they're quite different. Do you agree, Mark? Yes, definitely. We, we see a lot of the same thing, and uh, very often with careful questioning of, of the parents, we see anxiety more generally, but often these obsessive-compulsive ordering types of behaviors in the family as well. When the child presents with the comorbidities, it, it complicates everything a bit more. Yes. I mean, we're trying now some techniques where we're targeting our management and treatment packages actually at the parents, and the parents are very on board for this. In the older children, we've been successful in working with a behavioral psychologist who implements a habit reversal training, and that's been fairly successful in the older children, but again, only in the older children, only in ones that are highly motivated. Again, I don't know, you know how effective it would be in a broader spectrum of children. I'm thinking probably minimum age of seven, six or seven. I agree. In your experience, I'd be very interested in whether you've done surveillance of cognitive profiles in these children. Do you find that they're actually often above normal intelligence? As a matter of fact, we're doing that just now, and the 
I'm just beginning to look at the data. I think we probably have close to 30 that we've done careful neuropsychological surveillance, and their preliminary look at that looks as if there's a real wide range, much wider than we see in Tourette syndrome, for example. And in all of our work with Tourette syndrome, the children don't seem to have any uh, intellectual deficits, and in fact, those with the more pure Tourette syndrome seem to actually have higher IQs than is expected in a couple of different cohorts, but we're not seeing the same thing with the stereotypes so far. We see a much wider range. Okay. And do you think that's possibly because you're skewed with some of the children with other additional developmental difficulties within that group? I think so. And I don't think any of the children in our group of this 25 to 30 that we've done cognitive assessments on have just stereotypes and really nothing else, maybe only a few. Yes. Many of them have ADHD. Many of them have other anxiety difficulties. Well, we recently described in Toronto at the Movement Disorder Symposium, we described a, a pair of siblings, actually, who both had very marked, very similar stereotypes. And the father disclosed after several appointments, actually, that he was suffering very significant OCD. Mm-hmm. And that was quite interesting to me because, you know, I would have predicted that initially was hunting quite hard for any OCD, which was, you know, not discussed. But then it came out at a later date and... I thought that was very interesting, actually. I think when we ask carefully, that often comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that some anxiety in the family is not uh, obsessive compulsive uh, behaviors. Have you done any behavioral work or psychological work, should I say, with the parents that you've shown has then had an effect on childhood therapy decrease? Not, not at this point, but certainly something that would be important. And, you know, right now we are involved in a a couple of different studies that uh, are looking at animal models, and we're also, we've got probably 10 or 12 more children that we've done neuroimaging for, and then we've got probably close to 25 to 30 that we've done the cognitive assessment for, and then then we have a larger group that has, we've begun to do genetic testing with the family, and and we're we're looking to get some of the results back in about a month for that. So there's a, a lot of interest. I'm really interested as well, in part because we see it in our clinic, but also because there isn't much written about it. Yeah. In the neuroimaging work you're doing, is it predominantly tractography now, DTIs, or are you doing more? We're, we're doing DTI and volumetric, and we're adding resting state functional imaging. So focusing on the same sort of work that we're doing yeah. the Tourette field? Or? Yes, yes. We're yeah. mostly looking at it. Is there... You know, some of the animal models are suggesting that ventral sciatica may be an important area. Our, just our very first group that we looked at, which was maybe eight or nine, seemed to show reduced putamen volume compared to typically developing children. Our neuroimaging work is involving diffusion tensor imaging, functional MRI with resting state functional MRI and volumetric imaging in We've only collected about 12 children so far, but we already have a group of children with autism who have stereotypes and a group of typically developing children who don't have anything as comparison groups uh, that have already been collected. And and now that we're adding the the children with stereotypes, we have the comparison groups. And and our initial analysis suggested that there may be putamen volume reduction in the group of stereotypes compared to children without, to the typically developing controls and to compared to the children with autism with stereotypes. Are you doing XM sequencing now? Or? 
Uh, they're, they're beginning to. We have, haven't gotten back any of the analysis yet. So Okay. It's going to be a rich, rich thing to look at in the future. I think that um, it will be extremely interesting to do that. I mean, the other area that we're quite interested in is obviously neurotransmission, but so far quite disappointing, where children have come through the neurological route and been fully investigated. Some children having had CSF neurotransmitters, it's, it's not revealing anything useful at the moment. Right. That would be interesting. We're also uh, collecting data as we go along, and that the 100 children that we uh, published on a couple of years ago to chart review, we're, we're going back again and following them again and trying to add some more just to find out what happened to these children. And I think one of the things that we found initially is that when we went back to follow up on the children, many of them continued to have the behaviors, that in the majority of, of the sample, they didn't go away. Yes, and that's really interesting, isn't it, to work out whether, as adults, people still feel a different level of movement, arousal, if you like, and, and whether they just, in the same way as people would direct, describe as adults, that they've maybe learned to disguise the movements or um, reverse the movements into a different movement in the same way as you do in some habit reversal. It'd be very interesting to know what adults with stereotypes describe. I haven't come across that yet. I'm, I've tried to follow children now for several years, but quite often these children get lost to follow-up because there's no reason they feel they need to come back and see a neurologist because they feel that their movements right. are now better. And it's very difficult because you, I want to keep giving these children appointments to come back and see me once a year, but they don't want to come. One of the things that we've just started to do, which I think may help this a lot, is that we've put a number of these follow-up questionnaires into an online format that we can just send to the parents and they can fill out the kind of the ratings online of how the child is doing and at least get us, you know, a bit more information. It's not the same as, a, as an in-person examination, but a number of the, the data that we get are really parent report anyway. So we're trying to be more efficient and try to get that online. So we're hoping to keep our numbers growing. That sounds good. Very good. Nice to have very long-term surveillance, I think. And like you say, looking at employment and functional outcome in life. Can I take you back to a slightly different question, please? You know um, infant gratification phenomena? They are a form of stereotypy, do you think? I think it's on the same spectrum, personally. I see lots of children with this condition because they get referred as, um, is this a stereotypy sometimes by other neurologists or sometimes it's actually pediatricians referring in saying is this dystonia? I mean I've had that question with very good video demonstrating infantile gratification and I think of this very much on a spectrum and quite interesting as well sometimes you see the same link with obsessive compulsive disorder in the parents. We see some of the same thing and Yes, I think it's very much reliant on, on video recording, but again, I never know whether it's referral bias because of where we're sitting and the clinic we're running, of, uh, you know, who we get to see, but it's quite rare these days for parents not to come armed with multiple DVDs, just showing the nice videos of all the movements. I mean, it's extremely helpful. I think with mobile phones and electronic recording, iPhones, it's made video in clinic much, much more useful. Exactly. I would add, I do think that there are parent groups that are beginning to recognize this 
and that there are a number of blogs online and, and a couple of websites dedicated you know, complex motor stereotypies. And what's helpful is that the parents will post their children's video there. And with anything, a picture is very helpful in trying to understand what it is we're trying to describe. So when our parents come in and they're able to look at other children who are doing the same thing, it's you know, very relieving for them. Yes, I agree, yeah. I wondered, just on the question of typically developing children, I am coming around to this a bit more, but I'm not entirely sure. I mean, obviously, I think of developmental things as being on a spectrum of normality. So when you're talking about the children with stereotypies where you feel they're otherwise normal developmentally, I'm just wondering well, how much assessment you do, how much in-depth assessment do you do things like social communication, screening, and would you follow those children up anyway, regardless? We do, and, and we're beginning to uh, – our initial screening was not as thorough as what we're doing now, so the initial – chart review and the screenings that we looked at were really just screenings and we went back and did additional questions to try to characterize. Yes, yeah. And uh, now we're looking much more closely at the, at the entire behavioral and cognitive phenotype and there are still a number of children who don't have any real social communication problems, they don't have tremendous anxiety to speak of, their cognitive profiles are fine, they don't have ADHD. So there definitely are a subgroup of these children who really are typical. And do you find in, in that cognitive profile, though, if you looked at in-depth, do you find some discrepancy between verbal and nonverbal? Not at this point, but again, we've only got about 20 children in, so this is a question that's in progress. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Are there any other final points you'd like to make? No, I, I thank you for uh, taking the opportunity to highlight this condition, and I'm pleased to see Tammy's paper being uh, published. And it's, I think it's going to be an important paper, and you know, I hope that it's widely recognized that this, this condition is probably more common than we think and deserves a bit more investigation. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Headley and Professor Mahone. Very often, it's really feel that I've been a rather neglected part of the motor disorders, and there's a lot still to learn in terms of classification, understanding why they happen, the natural history, and the treatment. It's been very, very informative to hear you discussing the work in the field, and I hope very much this does help children coming to your clinics and everyone else's clinics as well. Just to remind listeners, the article is by Barry et al., and is entitled Neurodevelopmental Movement Disorders, an Update on Chartered Motor Stereotypies.